In this episode, we speak with Professor Nick Cheeseman, who's Professor of Democracy at the University of Birmingham. We speak with Nicole Beardsworth, who's a postdoctoral researcher in politics and international relations at the University of Pretoria. And we speak with Professor Miles Lama, who teaches and researches African history at St. Anthony's College, Oxford. In this episode, we talk about the rise of democracy, the, the nature of governance on African states today, the structural adjustment programs, the states themselves, and the importance of the state today, um, the rise of alternate futures, and of course, the intellectual, economic, political, and sectoral transformation taking place across the continent. Now we speak with Professor Nick Cheeseman, who is Professor of Democracy at the University of Birmingham. So, well, I just have to continue. Yeah, perfect. So I think the fall of the Soviet Union was really important for democratization in Africa in a couple of different ways. You know, one, uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, which, of course, had been this powerful authoritarian regime, uh, all of a sudden created this idea that democracy and perhaps liberal democracy was supreme and powerful and had been able to defeat its most, you know, greatest challenger. And that created a real kind of shot in the arm for the idea that there was a kind of global progress towards democracy and democracy was naturally going to win out. So if you like, that was a kind of important ideological or kind of theoretical win for democracy. The other fact, of course, was that all of a sudden, the United States and its associated allies didn't have to worry so much about competition from the Soviet Union. And so they were less willing to support authoritarian regimes in Africa on the basis that they would be allies with them against communism. And so there became greater international pressure for democratization. So these two processes, the kind of shot in the arm for the idea of democracy and the freeing up of Western powers to focus on democracy uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union were perhaps the two big things that then helped to explain the timing of democracy in Africa. And of course, from 1989 up until 1995, we have many, many countries across the continent reintroducing multi-party elections of one form or another. I think it's important, though, having said that, uh, to, to point out an important caveat, which is that sometimes the timing and the fact that international actors like the US and the UK started to demand elections and multi-partyism after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the end of the Cold War, is taken to mean that international actors delivered democracy to Africa, as if the international community had provided democracy in some way. And I would turn that narrative completely on its head. I would say if you look at many African countries, we had governments that have become fairly unpopular, they were often economically bankrupt, and actually they probably would have fallen before, but many of them were being propped up by an international community for political purposes because of the Cold War and the need to support allies. And actually, in a way, what happened in the early 1990s was the international community lifted the support it had been providing to authoritarian leaders, and so domestic factors started to play out. And actually, in many of these countries, there was already a very strong domestic opposition to authoritarian rule, but it wasn't able to be expressed. And that what we really see in the early 1990s is an explosion of desire for political choice, growth of civil society, people starting to express themselves politically that had been pent up for 20, 30 years. And that we shouldn't sort of prioritize those international factors over those domestic ones, because those domestic ones were really important. And 
and I argue this in my book from 2015, Democracy in Africa, those domestic ones are actually the ones that explain how successful the process of democratization was. Because whilst the international community were able to trigger elections in some countries, you know, demanding them, otherwise they would withhold donor funds, actually the international community wasn't able to do much about the quality of those elections. And if you ask how good were the elections in the early 1990s, I think the quality is much more dependent on the domestic context and domestic factors, the strength of the domestic opposition, the strength of domestic civil society, the independence of democratic institutions, and much less on international actors. Exactly. Um, However, um, you touched on this, there are some on the continent who believe that Democracy in itself is alien to the continent of Africa. Um, What do you have to say about this? I think there are two reasons people say that. I mean, one is that they often look back at pre-colonial Africa and they say, where are the democratic institutions? The second is that they sometimes look at contemporary Africa and they see a lot of countries that perhaps aspire to be democracies, but are struggling and have been stuck in a kind of authoritarian middle ground for a long period of time. And those two things lead to this idea that democracy has somehow been imported from outside, which connects to what I was saying a moment ago about the idea that democracy was somehow delivered to Africa by the international community, that it wasn't demanded and owned by Africans themselves. And I think both of those premises are flawed. You know, we know that there were some very hierarchical states that were authoritarian in pre-colonial Africa. It's true. But they actually covered a relatively small proportion of the continent. And in much of the continent, people lived in much more decentralized communities, which didn't recognize that kind of centralization of power. So, you know, while it's not the case that they were democracies in the sense that they would have you know, the full trappings of a modern state and multi-party elections, they did often recognize certain democratic principles. And in fact, it was the introduction of colonial rule and the greater authoritarian restrictions in colonial rule that really shifted uh, political systems and political traditions into a more authoritarian uh, into a more authoritarian direction. It's also true that if you actually ask people today, you know, what they believe and what they want, the vast majority of people across Africa say that they think democracy is more preferable than any other form of government. Look at the Afrobarometer surveys, which are all available online at afrobarometer.org. And the majority of people say that they want multi-party elections and they say that they reject one-party rule and they reject military rule. And I think one of the reasons for that is that, of course, many people in Africa have spent a long time living under one-party states and military regimes. And they know that in most cases they don't really deliver. They don't really deliver in terms of human rights, but of course they don't deliver also in terms of the economy. If you look at the 60s, 70s and 80s, the three best performing states in Africa on the economy were Botswana, Mauritius, Botswana and Mauritius, um, and to some extent, you know, Gambia didn't do too badly. Um, but Botswana and Mauritius were two of the states that did best on the economy, and they were the two democracies. Um, so I think there's strong evidence there that actually there's a real support for democratic norms and values within Africa. And I get frustrated when people say that, you know, democracy is somehow alien. Um, you know, it may well be the case that a form of democracy Uh, that is more um, locally owned and took on greater uh, awareness of previous historical traditions would become more embedded and more effective. But I think it's true that key democratic values are actually held in most African societies. And I think you could see this very simply in, you know, the way in which people would protest if you tried to actually stop multi-party elections in a country like Kenya or in a country like Zambia. You know, the mass popular protest against 
stopping uh, holding those elections would tell us that they have become very much domesticated and that these are no longer, you know, if they ever were, a simple international imposition. Definitely. I think you're very right. Um, Majority of people on the continent definitely believe in democracy because they've lived through authoritarianism and and seen the pitfalls of that. However, people who still do believe, and this is the majority, that democracy rests on the foundation of economic development. Mm. So healthcare, education, infrastructure, all these things are lacking severely on the African continent and is dependent on political system creating these things and putting them in place. However, because of the short-term nature of democratic principles, you know, eight years, four years, and the constant elections, people have this... um, idea of only doing certain things within their own period and not thinking in terms of a a long-term perspective. Um, What do you think about the current economic system on the continent? A lot of the countries are locked in this constant commodity cycle as opposed to um, a strong industrialization or a strong industrial base to lift more people out of um, poverty. Uh, uh, two answers to that. The first is about, you know, what people want and how much they want democracy versus economic growth. And, you know, people will often say that, you know, people in certain countries or societies would give up, you know, uh, democracy for, you know, food. Um, and actually, if you look at the Afrobarometer, there's been quite a lot of evidence and survey done around this. And people are much less willing to give up you know, uh, democracy for development than people sometimes suggest. Actually, if you ask people, they often say they would prefer to have a government that was more democratic than the government that performs slightly better on the economy. So I think the first thing that's worth saying is that people's support for democracy is relatively robust. But having said that, it is clear that people's evaluation of democracy is shaped by the evaluation of the economic situation. And it's clear that one of the reasons that people were so excited about democracy in the early 1990s is because they believed that it would deliver economic progress as well as political progress. They believed that it would be able to bring about, you know, a better world. And they obviously looked at countries like the UK and the US who had democracy and made the connection between democracy and development and then hoped that that would be a process that would happen at home. And so I think you're right. We do need to be really worried about prolonged periods of economic difficulty because they will raise serious questions about whether or not democracy is delivering and that potentially will start a conversation about whether or not a more authoritarian system of government will be able to deliver better. In that, you know, with that in mind, I'm really worried about the contemporary period. On the one hand, you know, we seem to have a number of leaders who are pushing their countries in more authoritarian directions. We could talk about Uganda under Museveni now trying to beat off the challenge of Bobby Wine. We could talk about Tanzania, where the election basically didn't allow for an effective opposition at all. Uh, Guinea and so on. Zambia, which is an election which is coming up where the president looks like he's really trying to consolidate his authority rather than allow a free and fair contest. Um, and that process of kind of leaders pushing their luck when it comes to you know democracy and backsliding is happening in the context of coronavirus when, of course, we're going to see significant economic challenges for African states. And it's not just the economic challenge now, it's the economic challenge to come because, of course, even early next year, when many parts of the world get vaccines, African states are not likely to have vaccines. Countries like Zambia and South Africa and Malawi, you know, compared to what they would have been used to. So a significant reduction in tourist revenues and that economic decline could uh, create significant problems for democracy. 
And I think it'll be really interesting to see how people interpret this, though. You know, do they see the economic difficulties their countries are going through as, you know, a, a, a failing of democracy itself? Or do they see them actually as failings of leaders who are unwilling to allow democracy to be actually be practiced in their country? And the survey evidence suggests a bit of both. You know, there's some evidence that people say, actually, you know, we want democracy and we haven't got it. So we're not going to blame democracy for this because actually we think it's leaders who are preventing democracy who are actually giving us bad economic conditions. But it's also, of course, clear that, you know, the longer economic decline goes on, in the Africa's more democratic countries, the more people may start to question, um, you know, the value of those systems. And I think that, you know, that that question about how people interpret economic decline, whether they blame democracy for it or not, is partly shaped by global events. You know, for me, the rise of China has been important um, in a m- number of ways. And at the beginning of the conversation, we talked about, you know, the Soviet Union, the collapse of that. And I said there were two important consequences of that. You know, one was about the idea of democracy and one was about, you know, the shifting strategy of Western powers. And I think China, you know, has a similar effect. It's revived the idea of authoritarian development, that maybe authoritarian states can get things done and are therefore better at development. And because of that, it's put the idea of kind of one-party states almost back on the table as a viable developmental model. And that's meant that people don't only have the democratic model to look at, they now have the authoritarian model as well. And one of my concerns moving forwards is that that generates more support for a kind of version of authoritarian development in Africa, as well as, of course, the fact that China and other non-democratic states are funding African governments, and partly because and through that funding, they're actually generating a situation in which those um, states have an incentive, perhaps, or an opportunity to be less democratic than they would have been in the past. So I think, you know, the, the rise of China, you know, makes a significant impact. The reason for me that I, I'm particularly worried about, you know, the idea of authoritarian development um, and that the idea that authoritarian states can develop better in Africa is that I just think it's flawed. You know, I think there's only two countries that you can really point to that did a great job of developing while authoritarian, and that's Rwanda and Ethiopia. And as you know, Ethiopia is right now going through a major political challenge because of the nature of its political system and the lack of political inclusion. So if we say that Ethiopia is no longer the kind of shining donor success story it perhaps was seen as being a few years ago, you're really left with the case of Rwanda. And Rwanda is a very small state that in many ways, because of its distinctive history, isn't particularly uh, isn't a particularly good example in terms of being able to export its model to the rest of Africa. So I think we do need to really challenge this idea that, you know, an authoritarian developmental model would be good for Africa. But I do worry that the rise of China and the other factors that we've talked about has led to that being put back on the table, having been off the table for quite a few years. Definitely. You touched on two things there. Um, but the ma- major thing is, is the rise of China. But let's look at this now. What last thing you talked about broadly is the global stage and how it affects how Africa navigates the world. Um, on one hand, you mentioned China and their model and giving financing to countries, which many other countries in the West would not give financing to African countries to build um, railways, to build roads, because it's not in their, in their interest. And on the other hand, you have the neoliberal model, which believes that the state should take a step back and many things should be privatized. So healthcare and um, education and many more things have been privatized in the last 20 years or so, many countries across Africa. Um, 
for people who live on in the continent, these are two different models. One that the state should have an active role, and the state does have an active role in many Western countries. Um, but picking where and when should the state have an active role, and then also two is unleashing on the entrepreneurial spirit of the African continent mm. by allowing um, investment, private investment, as opposed to state-led investments. What do you think about these two models? So on one hand, you have the Western model of saying that you should unleash um, entrepreneurial development by allowing the state to to take a step back. On the other hand, then the Chinese model is saying that the state should take an active role in producing um, certain economic prosperity for, for the people. It's a great question. I mean, I think one of the things that I see is that there is a relationship between, you know, how you run your economy and your prospects for democracy. And the Barrington Moore and the foundations for democracy, I see a greater possibility of democratization when the power of the government to control economic opportunities is reduced. In other words, when the government doesn't get to decide who gets rich and who doesn't, who has jobs and who doesn't, who wins contracts and who doesn't. Um, you know, that is one of the main things keeping authoritarian regimes in power right now. That kind of subtle, non-stop ability to make certain people win and certain people lose as economically. And, of course, a state-controlled economy can do very many good things. It can redistribute wealth. It can pick areas of investment. Um, it has been successful under certain circumstances in a number of countries around the world. But one thing it does do is it places that kind of economic control into the hands of the government. And all party can abuse that to really punish opposition leaders and supporters and to reward its own leaders and supporters. Um, whereas if you do have a more free market system which gives uh, greater control um, to businesses and you know less control to the state um, and creates alternative centers of wealth and power because it creates a new kind of middle class and uh, entrepreneurial class, then those people can potentially act as a check and balance on the government in the future. And that creates greater prospects for democratization. That said, I think it's also important to say that, of course, you know, that idea that the free market generates these greater opportunities and generates greater freedoms is also in way in some ways problematic. We've often seen governments that have kind of signed up to free market principles that in practice run their economies in ways that do very similar things and that manipulate the economy. So it's not the case that the free market always does that or the state-controlled development always leads to repression. But I think in, in the context that we're talking about, if we're talking about countries like you know Zambia, Tanzania, Zimbabwe, I think we've seen what state dominated economies look like and they look pretty inefficient they perform pretty poorly for the poorest but they also prevent and stymie democratization and this actually brings me uh, brings to mind a nice book by leonardo Ariola, uh, which actually looks at you know how coalitions are formed and one of the things that he points out is that it's much easier for opposition leaders to form effective coalitions if they can borrow and have access to money to fund those coalitions and essentially to keep the people in those coalitions happy and on side and that that's easier to do you know, where you have, for example, privatization of the banking system so that you can go and potentially get loans from banks and other, you know, wealthy individuals, which is not something you can usually do when they're all controlled by the state because the government prevents them from lending to you or giving you access to capital. And so, you know, in his work, you can see this very, very direct relationship between the degree of state control over parts of the economy and the ability of the opposition to mobilize effectively. Um, so, yes, I think, you know, I think that is something that is is really important to take in mind as both an economic and a political consideration. Definitely. <clears throat> Definitely. 
The next question is about the civil service. So people believe the civil service are there regardless of the opposition or the people in power, whatever. They are there 25, 30 years. And on the African continent, civil service is characterized by corruption and mismanagement. To what extent is the civil service important in entrenching or disentrenching democracy? I think that, you know, the, the civil service in many countries has become, of course, fairly embedded within the ruling party. So in countries where we haven't seen transfers of power for the last 20 years, you know, there's a worrying kind of deep connection between the ruling party and the civil service. I remember hearing a story from a Kenyan MP who had become a minister. And his story was that he, he walked into the ministry and he, he sat down with the senior civil servants and so on. And he, he talked to them about how he wanted to improve things. And one of the things he talked about was reducing things like corruption. And he saw a kind of um, a sly look come over some of their faces <laughs> and a, not a knowing look. Um, and it was quietly explained to him afterwards that, you know, MPs and ministers only have so much control. Quite a lot of the control is with permanent secretaries and, minis- and exactly. the civil service. And the civil service have been running certain scams for very many years. And the minister should not think that he was so important or powerful that he would be able to stop them. So I think we often forget the importance of the civil service, both sometimes in doing a very good job and delivering services. And they're much maligned, but there are cases where significant improvements have been made, for example, with some revenue authorities over the last decade, which has led to greater tax takes for government, but also the complicity often of the civil service in acts of corruption and the way in which that um, both undermines government performance, but also makes it again, as we've been talking about, you know, difficult for, for the opposition to do well. And I think, you know, two of the things that really make it challenging to you know, deal with corruption as a broader issue Um, are one, you know, the fact that it's often embedded within civil service networks themselves and therefore reforming politicians who come in aren't necessarily as free to remove it as they might be. But also then the fact that, you know, the way the political game works, the fact that you often have to borrow money to be able to stand as a contestant, in it, you know, to be an MP, to be a governor or senator, you often need to borrow money from senior political figures or banks. We know that, you know, the amount spent on election campaigns far exceed what MPs earn, even in countries like Kenya, where MPs earn a vast amount. Um, and so the game is, you know, constantly trying to finance the election campaigns. And of course, as soon as you're starting to borrow money and get support from senior political figures, you're launch anti campaigns because you benefited from the processes that you're now critiquing uh, because they're the things that helped you to get the money that got you into power in the first place and i think one of the things that we we don't recognize enough is the way in which the kind of structure of politics and the requirements of getting into parliament then compromise your ability to do what you want in parliament in terms of being an effective reformist some have done it there have been some great mps who've done it you know despite all of the challenges um, but the fact that MPs are constantly spending so much money on elections and are expected to deliver so much to their constituents, you know, in terms of just, you know, school fees, funeral fees and so on, is a constant driver of the need for funds. And I think the corruption scandals that we see. Definitely. Well, the final question, um, over the course of your research, looking at trends and metrics, what would you say is on the horizon for democracy in Africa? That's a great question. I mean, the thing I've been banging on about for the last few years, not just me, but a lot of people, is, is urbanization. And we often talk about urbanization in Africa um, in terms of the way it might impact on the economy, on you know, urban housing, on slums, etc. 
Um, but urbanization is going to have a profound effect on democracy as well. One thing we know in general is that urban populations are likely to be more supportive of the opposition as compared to their rural counterparts. Urban populations are sometimes, not always, but a lot of the time, also more likely to demand accountability from governments. Um, you know, for example, if you look at survey data. So, you know, if we've got a country that's now 30% urban, 70% rural, which many African states are, that's, you know, roughly what you would see in somewhere like Kenya, say Uganda. But in 20 years' time, because of urbanization, those countries are going to be majority urban. All of a sudden, uh, the ability of governments to do what they're doing at the minute, which is often to win elections based on the rural vote, um, and, you know, despite not being able to win capital cities, is going to change. All of a sudden, if you can't win urban areas and capital cities, you're not going to win elections. And so governments are going to have to go for more kind of ignoring urban constituents or, you know, battling them and relying on the rural vote, often mobilized through traditional leaders, uh, to actually trying to win some of the votes in urban areas as well. And I think that's going to fundamentally change the nature of, of politics. Um, definitely, definitely. And so we could see, you know, therefore quite high levels of, you know, significant political change. Now, governments could be very good at that. They could find ways of harnessing the urban vote, but it could mean that they're increasingly rubbing up against this kind of more demanding electorate that is increasingly powerful. Um, and, of course, that electorate also has greater access to social media. It's more likely to be on the Internet. It's more likely to perhaps be sympathetic to ideas like gender equality and so on. So this isn't just about democracy and equality of elections. This is potentially about civil liberties, human rights, gender equality, broader sets of issues. And I think that's one of the things that you know gives me long-term hope. It's not just that I believe that African you know, people believe in democracy fundamentally. Uh, that's one of the things that gives me hope for the future. But the other thing is that I see a lot of these socioeconomic shifts are going to strengthen demands for democracy. And that's why even though we're in a particularly bad year right now, if you were to look at the next 10 to 20 years, I would say that over 10 to 20 years, I believe we will see a more democratic continent than we see today. I mean, the concept of democracy has been on the continent since time immemorial. Many of the African states and nations practiced democratic processes of governance. However, in the 1960s, we started to see a new model, you know, particularly in the Eastern African countries like Kenya and Tanzania. So now we hear from Julius Nyerere, who was president of Tanzania, in an interview he did in 1966, speaking on his own model of democracy. Well, you know the problem with democracy. I, I don't think there is any country in the world which, which does not call itself democratic. All countries in the world call, call themselves democratic. It's a matter, first, of definition, uh, I think mainly of definition and of what we regard to be the essentials of democracy. We certainly ourselves regard ourselves as democratic. We understand why countries used to the multi-party system uh, don't uh, believe that a one-party system can be democratic or are rather suspicious of the one-party system. We can't, frankly, convince them by sheer argument, uh, philosophical argument, that this is possible. Perhaps the best thing is actually to see this thing in, in, in practice. What are the essentials of democracy? The essentials of democracy are that individuals should feel unharassed, that they are actually free in, the, in their society, individual. This is the most essential thing. 
I never see why an individual should not feel free because of a machinery of election. And, and the two part or the one part is really basically a machinery of election. The second one, when it comes to, ma to machinery, is that an individual should feel a true choice of the people he wants to represent him in, in, in a government where it's no longer possible for people individually to participate in the government, that you have to select individual representatives. Either sometimes you select parties, sometimes you select individuals. Now, frankly, I don't see why the thing cannot be democratic simply because sometimes you select a party, which is what the Western countries usually do. <laughs> and in our own case, you select an individual, the party being given, the party, party policy being given. So this is the kind of election we went through the other day, and, and we, we honestly believe we are, we, we are independent, and we really ask the old countries at least to be democratic enough, to have a free mind, and to, and to study the... the the new experiments which are taking place in, in the rest of the world and, and this experiment which is taking place in my own country. Yeah. It is democratic. We believe it is democratic. So now we speak with Dr. Nicole Beardsworth, who is a postdoctoral research fellow in politics and international relations at the University of Pretoria. Now I think we enter a period that's more familiar to you. Um, the period of a rise in proliferation of democracies across not just Southern Africa, but Africa in general. So the 90s. Um, why exactly did many African countries begin to see democracy? I mean, some of them have been practicing democracy in the past, but it's sort of like an authoritarian sort of democracy. But around this period, they began to embrace multi-party democracies in earnest. Um, like, for example, in, in Zambia, Kaunda leaves office in 1991. I mean, if he had lost the election just five years prior, he wouldn't have left, you know. So why exactly uh, do nations on the African continent begin to embrace democracy, not just in Southern Africa, but all across, so East, West, and even the North? So there's a lot of different dynamics which drive democratization across the continent. I think um, the first place where we see uh, a sort of push for democratization is it comes from below. Um, in many cases in the 1980s, what we'd seen was uh, the 1970s debt crisis had pushed a lot of African government, governments into a crisis point. And many of them could no longer afford the kinds of social services that the idea of the big state had, um, had entrenched. So in the 1960s and 1970s, independent African states had tried to create government healthcare, government education systems, uh, a broad range of social services to, to create a kind of modernity um, for citizens of African countries. But the debt crisis in the 1970s mean that, means that a lot of these services begin to break down. And then we see the influence of the IMF and the World Bank and structural adjustment programs in many places, which then deepen and entrench uh, the regression of those social services. So you have the uh, populations in many of these countries who were expecting improved social services. Mm -hmm. And in the 80s, those go into decline. And we see the rise of protest across much of the continent. Um, and, and a kind of uh, the world, the OAU, um, 
and the US and the UK uh, becoming tired of the strongman dictatorships that they had fostered during the Cold War, um, mm. having, having less tolerance for those kinds of uh, governance systems. So we see, I think it's in Benin, um, the first conference uh, for multi-party democracy. And this idea starts to spread like wildfire across the continent. And elites that had been locked out of um, out of the governments that had, had been in power for decades, those elites start to agitate for what is seen as the only game in town now is democracy after the fall of the USSR. So you have a convergence of global dynamics with local dynamics um, and, and a sort of recession of the state, which leaves a lot of uh, leaders with very little room to maneuver. So many of them make concessions and say, okay, we'll move towards elections, we'll move towards multi-party democracy. And then many of those countries, as you said, like Zambia, miscalculated. And Kaunda thought that he was so popular that he would be easily re-elected in 1991. Mm-hmm. But of course, that was not the case. And it wasn't the case in, in many sub-Saharan African countries, which saw sudden turnovers as soon as multi-party democracy was entrenched. In your view, what do you think is the dominant thing that drives you know, foreign relations in the democracies of Africa today? I think it really depends. Um, so I think, you know, you have countries that are seen as keystone peace and security states. Uh, we've seen along with, you know, 9-11, the rise of <laughs> the axis of evil, as George Bush used to like to call it. Uh, but, but also, you know, the Islamic State um, and other radical uh, Islamic movements that have some of whom have gotten a foothold uh, on the African continent. Um, we've seen the, the growing importance of peace and security as a driver of foreign policy and Western policy towards Africa. And even more recently than that, we see uh, one of the main drivers of, of EU, uh, US and UK relations with Africa being uh, controlling flows of migration. Um, So with the migration crisis, which kind of came to a head around 2015, we now see the EU trying to drive an agenda of uh, preventing migration to Europe. Uh, And so countries that have found themselves um, on the kind of the fringes on the edges of Europe have have found that they have access to a lot more resources um, for fighting, uh, for A, fighting terrorism and B, preventing migration. And that means that those countries have often been able to act in ways that are are more authoritarian, um, that that limit citizen uh, limit citizens' rights and participation. Mm. So that's one of these issues. Another, another kind of key issue in Eastern Africa is uh, the war in Somalia. So um, governments in Kenya and in Ethiopia have been long supported, oh, and Uganda as well, have long been supported by the UK and the US um, because of their fight against, uh, against Somali um, 
terrorism in Somalia uh, and because of their involvement in the war in Somalia. So Museveni's government in Uganda has had, in some ways, a domestic blank check uh, from Western governments where they could behave, the, the Ugandan government could behave in a way where it limited citizens' rights because they had support of external actors in doing so. So there was a kind of unqualified support for Museveni because of his uh, key role in the war in um, in Somalia and in maintaining uh, peace and security in the Horn of Africa and in the East African region. So that's that's a kind of key uh, nexus of security, migration, and these kind of keystone states. Then there are a lot of countries which... Um, which have a kind of much lower profile. I'm just thinking about sort of Zambia, which is not a keystone state, mm-hmm. which doesn't have a role in these kinds of uh, international security or securitized um, processes. And so Zambia's international relations is is a bit more muted. It depends on trade. Um, there is more support domestically for a uh, human rights agenda, for uh, democratization. And so we see the sort of terms of the conversation being a little bit more um, in favor of human rights and democratization in, in Zambia in a way in which it doesn't seem to be quite so much so in Uganda. Um, so, yeah, I think... In terms of what the dominant issues are on the table in engagement with Africa, I think that's currently what we're looking at. But it, mm. it very much depends from country to country. I mean, you would know, of course, for Nigeria, mm-hmm. um, the degree to which Western support uh, for the government hinges on the government saying that they're fighting terrorism. In, exactly. In so now we hear a recording of former Secretary General Kofi Annan. He's speaking on democracy and the role of human rights. People have a right to decide who governs them, how they are governed, and by whom. When governments and leaders believe that they are God sent to protect their people, to run a country and they want to stay there forever and in the process ignore the rights of the population lock them up mistreat them it's against human nature they will react Uh, we have seen reactions to that kind of rule all around the world and it will continue consider the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is a wonderful document. The question is, do we implement them? Do we live by them? Not entirely. But I'm not disillusioned. It will take time to fully embrace and implement it. So we have to be prepared to wake up every morning, every day, ready to fight. So now we speak with Professor Miles Lama. In your view, how 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 do you think this will play out <laughs> over the next few decades? 
it's really interesting to watch still, um, you know, look at any map of, of African rail, railroads or main road routes, those that were built by colonists in the 1900s, 1910s and 20s, and those being built today, often by Chinese companies. The routes run from the interior to the coast. These are routes that are all about extraction. It's about bleeding the veins of the continent and extracting goods and resources out of those places to the exterior, mostly with very little added value. So we can still see cocoa flows out of West Africa, minerals flow out of Central Africa, and so on. And very little value is added. So I think many of the current economic debates are about adding value, ensuring that there are African markets for African-produced goods, which absolutely exist. But as we know, it's cheaper to take those goods out and ship them to China than take goods, let's say, for example, from Nigeria and transport them to Sudan. Not mm-hmm. such a long distance, but thousands of kilometers across mainly dirt roads. Congo today still has no tarred roads that connect the north to the south and the east to the west. These are real legacies of colonial extraction that no independent African government has really overcome. So we've been aware of that problem for a long time. I think breaking down internal borders is absolutely key, creating incentives for the effective economic integration of the continent so people can trade with each other, people can work out ways of adding value to commodities, um, to lead to processes of industrialization and so on. Um, but again, there are there are not only real uh, economic challenges to doing that in terms of access to credit, access to uh, banking and so on. So a Chinese bank can provide a billion dollar loan for exactly. a railway which moves goods from the interior to the coast, but probably not one that connects Nigeria to Sudan, for example. Um, now we hear a recording of former president of Ghana, Jerry Rollins. The world is going through changes, etc. We've been through the pain of colonialism, and today we're going through colonialism, neo-colonialism, in the sense that what I'm trying to say is that uh, there was a time when we saw the white man, our colon- colonial powers, as uh, as our enemies. But I think. No, not that I think. Something that is worse than an enemy is a traitor. Yes. And when our own, when we won our freedom, some of our countries were led by some of the most noble nationalists, you know, of our time. But at the same time, with the passage of time, some of them became treacherous and rather betrayed our aspirations. In, in effect, what I'm trying to say, is that um, um, as bad as an enemy can be, I think something worse than an enemy is a traitor. We've we've end, ended up evolving in the process of trying to modernize. We've ended up rather ended up being westernized to the point where, as I sit here before you. When I wanted to even name my children African names, heroic names, I'm a Catholic. The Catholic Church, or that character, you know, back at home, said, no, I cannot. They'll have to be um, uh, Catholic names. I mean, those Catholic names are European names. 
I went through an argument with this priest and I said, listen, I have a right to my identity. Don't take away my identity. Okay? I mean, Christianize me if you may, but don't westernize me. There were times my wife and I is a great a, a graphic artist. We made some beautiful Christmas cards that depicted Christmas in an African setting. And the Christmas cards sold so well, even with Catholic nuns, white Catholic nuns. We wanted to secure the patent. I went to an office, the Registrar General's office, to secure the patent. Can you believe that this fellow African, you know, Registrar General, looking at my black personality, black face, told me that, no, I cannot. This was long after independence, and that it's going to take about three years. I said, why three years? He said, it'll have to go to England. It'll go to England, and it might take about three years before I'm granted the right to that patent or whatever it is that register. In other words, in effect, what I'm trying to say is that, oh, so I have no right to even my creativity. I create my own. You take it away from me and you have to send it to the colonial power. Three years later, when they have reproduced it and I have no more right to it. So as an African, when you're talking about democracy, etc., let's put it aside. Let me bring you to the current modern situation since the collapse of the Eastern Bloc. And we have this unipolar world. The mistakes they're making, you know, by virtue of how they are approaching, especially, let's say, the Iraq and the Afghanistan situation, it is undermining international political morality. And what it's doing is that it's percolating downwards. So as it percolates downwards, every mistake you make downwards, by the time it gets to my country, the mistake is is, is multiplied by five times. People in my part of the world are beginning to mimic and take the cue from the new global leaders. What does that mean? Let me give you one fine example. In America, you have Republicans... You have the Democrats. You have industries that are strong and independent enough to be able to vote or, or, or finance whoever they wish. So there's a certain element of independence. But you come to my country. The new, when you're talking about export, the new situation over the last few years is that those who are in power today in a setting, in a setting, taking the cue from the new global power, Bush's America, uh, uh, what you call it, uh, uh, the unipolar world, they are destroying every opposition. Any business they think is associated with, uh, what you call it, with the opposition has to be destroyed. Containing some of, the, typically of my, my country, what is happening? My dear friend, you know what you're doing? You are sowing the seed of instability. 